0: I'm going to do something a little different this morning here, and I'm going to need a volunteer for that. And so the volunteer um, that I've decided it will be is John Choto. so come on. You knew it was going to be you, right? When you heard volunteer, you thought, I'm getting drafted. You're perfect for this, bro. Yeah, here you go. So just hang tight right here. This is a, yeah, this is a different thing. It was kind of fun for a service. We're gonna start off with a Mad Lib this morning. Oh boy. Yeah, so you're gonna be my helper. You guys know what a Mad Lib is? You with me, all right? Okay, so John, thank you for volunteering, by the way.
1: You're welcome. Okay.
0: I need uh, an agency. FBI. Okay. Um, I need a remote location, a, like even a fictional remote location. Coldfoot. Okay. Fictional, huh? Um, and a people group. Israelites.
1: Who's that? The Israelites.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, I need a color. Red. I need an article of clothing. Socks. Nice. And a food. Baba ganoush. I'm gonna abbreviate that, just Okay, Uh, I need a number, one to
1: 100. 73. Nice.
0: I think that was the same number for service. Whoa, whoa. I was gonna ask what are the odds of that, but that's fairly calculable, isn't it? (laughs) I need a vehicle.
1: A vehicle? Uh, Bronco. Okay. Okay. Old school style. Old, all right, got it.
0: Cut fenders or not?
1: Uh, You could choose. All right. Uh,
0: I need another number, one to 100. 27. (laughs) No way. Both numbers were the same. (laughs) That's weird. I need a cultural quirk.
1: Um, Saying God bless you.
0: Okay. Um, I need a belief of origins origin story.
1: Spider-Man, getting bitten by the radioactive spider.
0: (laughs) Nice. World's biggest problem? (laughs) (coughs)
1: Uh, (laughs) Lack of faith in the Lord. All right, don't
0: go all Sunday school on me at the end. (laughs)
1: We could get in the weeds if you want.
0: Yeah, well, just close to the weeds. Uh, how 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 this problem can be fixed?
1: Discipleship. Okay. Sorry about the Sunday school.
0: One. Yeah. Uh, and what is uh, the ideal future? To be in heaven with the Lord. Okay. <laughs> the same thing happened. I could basically you uh, yeah all right did you call on the first service scott matthews did you guys chat did he say dude it's a buddy of mine yeah <laughs> weird john eric's absolutely gonna call okay thank you very much you can have a seat can you guys give john a hand please okay here's the moment of truth we want to know what john just did right so john this is your missions trip yeah you have been selected john choto by the fbi to take the gospel to Coldfoot, to to the Israelites, (laughs) who are a long way from home. Um, The Israelites are known for their red socks and baba ganoush. Your team of 73 will travel by Old Bronco to serve this community for 27 years, even though this people group, in a weird quirk, continues to say, God bless you they presently believe they came from radioactive spiders (laughs) and the world's biggest problem is the lack of faith solved by discipleship so that they can be forever with the lord and you are their missionary although it sounds like they're in pretty good shape so (laughs) all right well uh having a little bit of fun with that and you'll see why i did that in a little bit here but we have been looking at paul's missionary journeys he's on his second one And even though he had uh, aspired to go to Asia, the Lord blocked him by the Holy Spirit and redirected he and his team um, actually to Europe. And so there they are. Uh, They started out in Philippi, created a little bit of a ruckus there, had to leave, moved on to Thessalonica, same thing, a little bit of contention, pushed out to Berea, Same thing, and finally had to flee to the safety of Athens. And that is where we pick up on Paul and his missionary journey uh, this morning. And as we've been observing sort of his strategy throughout this journey, we've noticed Paul consistently preaches the same gospel, but he often provides a different apologetic based upon his audience's need and I think this is an important skill for Christians today to learn this and that is to listen well to our audience to be good students of those to whom we're proclaiming the gospel so that we can understand and appreciate their particular gap that is the gap in their present belief uh, to gospel belief what is that gap and how can we speak to that and I think Paul Um, does a great job at showing this to us. He typically, as this is custom, he goes into his city, goes into the synagogues first and begins speaking to God-fearing Jews who are looking for Messiah in order to show them that Jesus is the Messiah they had been waiting for. And so to the Jews, um, Paul and the other apostles, their preaching, their consistent preaching of the gospel to that group uh, was that Messiah had to suffer die, and raise from the dead, because that's their gap. He starts with them because the gap is pretty small. They're looking for a Messiah. They have a shared authority, the Scriptures, and he can argue for the fact that Jesus was to suffer, die, and rise from the dead from the Scriptures. And so we kind of acknowledged that last week the gap for, uh, for Jews was small. Well, today we find that Paul's audience changes a bit. And so, where initially he does begin by preaching in the Jewish synagogues, he quickly finds himself sort of out on the streets, in the marketplace, in sort of open-air forums, and he is preaching the gospel primarily to Gentiles. And we kind of acknowledged last week that the gap for Gentiles between present belief and gospel belief is much wider. And I think, in fact, it is more reflective of our cultural situation today. And so I want to just draw out three of the ways that particularly the culture in Athens is kind of similar uh, to our own culture today. First of all, we find that they're pluralistic, which means they believed in in many gods. They believed in the whole pantheon of of Greek gods and Roman gods. In fact, it even led one Roman satirist uh, to sort of quip that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Sounds to me like this is a jilted woman or a bitter woman who can't find a date or something. That's what that quote sounded to me like. Easier to find a god than a man. The second thing I think is similar in our culture. Not only is it pluralistic, but it's idolatrous. That is, they worship gods of their own making, of inanimate objects. And I think that's very much true of our culture today as well. Idolatry is rampant. Now, we might think about that and go, I don't, I don't have any idols in my home. I don't have anything covered in silver or gold or that I bow down to. But I think the idols in our lives tend to have tires on them or tracks or triggers or a good medium-fast graphite action with enough sensitivity for delicate presentation. Right? These are the potential idols in, in our lives. That was a fly rod, by the way, if you didn't track with me there. The third thing is, they think they had a real high view of self. Uh, this was an incredibly, a uh, place with incredible intellectual history, the home of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, the home of great literature, great reasoning, and they had a massive influence on society in terms of human liberty and knowledge. And so, there, it's just a very similar place than I th- as I think we find our culture Today, So it's interesting to see how does Paul engage this culture with this wide gap, because I think we can learn from him. And again, I want to be explicit about this. The gospel doesn't change, but the apologetic applied often does. So look with me here, Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, Then they took him and brought him into a a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. The first thing that stands out to me, and I didn't put this in your notes, but I think this is an important place for starters, is to acknowledge Paul's heart to recognize how he feels and and how this scene affects him uh, the word here paroxoso uh, we only have it's translated greatly distressed we only have this this Greek phrase one other time in the New Testament and it's in 1 Corinthians 13 5 where it says do not become easily angered so it's along that line of perturbed annoyed uh, provoked, uh, deeply distressed here. And I, I think that's an important question for us to consider right out of the gates here, and that is, when we see a godless or idolatrous culture around us, does it affect our heart at all? Are we impacted? Are we moved in some way? When, when Jesus saw the crowds, we were told that he had compassion on them because they were harassed they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Paul saw a city full of idols, he was deeply distressed, or, or in another word, provoked in his spirit, as some translations have it. And this causes me to think about sort of this quotation from a Holocaust survivor, Eliezer Wiesel, who says this, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference indifference. But Jesus is not indifferent to the lost crowd or their needs. And Paul, as a Christ follower, is not indifferent to the idolatrous culture of Athens. It provoked him, but not just to be angry, rather it it animated him to a redemptive role in their life, to have gospel conversations, to address their issue to engage people with the gospel so i want to start right out of the at at the the beginning here with the question of the heart christian as you look around and see our culture increasingly absorbed in the self and in man-made idols and pluralism and secularism does it affect your heart are you grieved for them not just angered but grieved in such a way that you would address their spiritual need with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we see Paul, this this is his heart, first of all, but then we get to take some cues, I think, from sort of his strategies. And the first thing I would say, thoughtful Christian witness, will be attentive to cultural views. Everybody that you encounter, you yourself, we all have a worldview that we're operating from. Nobody is without one, even if they can't articulate it or or tell you what exactly it is. And uh, Greg Kolkel, who is one of our Christian Thought Forum speakers in his book, I think I listed in your notes, uh, The Story of Reality, he makes a statement basically that we can suss out somebody's uh, cultural worldview uh, with sort of four data points. And he uses the, um, and I've given these to you in the back of your notes, there's, there's three different frameworks that I'm gonna look at really quickly. But the first one that he presents is this, and this is actually the Christian worldview. It is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. These are sort of the chapters in the historical arc of the world. Now, if one's not a Christian, it's gonna be some of the same subjects, but it's gonna sound a little different, so I have this right next to it. It's going to be origins, or, and then, and then followed by what's wrong with the world. Then how is it fixed? And what is for the vision for the world once it's fixed? Um, and then one other way we might get at this, uh, there are probably dozens of ways. In fact, we've got a Sunday school class going on right now upstairs where they're looking at other um, worldview frameworks. But I'm trying to just give you something real practical that, that walks with you easily. But another way of doing this is asking sort of the big questions of life. Who are we? How did we get here? What's the good life? How can we know it? And what is after death? And and if we would engage people around us, for those whom you're having gospel conversations with, and you're trying to figure out what their worldview is, this is a great place to start, asking these kinds of questions or kind of running through that particular grid. So thoughtful Christian witnesses will be attentive to cultural worldviews and cultural trends around them. And how can we do this? A couple different ways. First of all, through study. And I want to give you a bunch of resources. I'll try not to overwhelm you, but again, I've I've listed a lot of these on the back of your notes here. There are ways that we can um, discover what some of these trends are. Uh, The first is through study, uh, through, I think, the reading of good books. I've listed two here that have been very helpful to me in the last couple of years. Um, The first is by Nancy Piercy, Love Thy Body. And she basically shows how our secular culture today, their view of the body and how it gets them to some of the things they hold, like the sexual ethic that's kind of rampant. And then The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is one that I'm still reading, not done yet, but it's been very helpful for me too. So books are a great place. Secondly, a little cringe, a little hesitation here, but podcasts? I'm kind of a late adopter in podcasts, partly because I don't, I don't drive anywhere long enough to listen to one. I live like two minutes away, so, you know, by the time I get here, I'm just getting through, like, the opening music or whatever. Uh, but here's a couple that I think are, are good, and podcasts can be really helpful for, for showing us what's happening in the culture because they're so right now. They didn't have to go through the whole publishing process of a book. It's sort of up-to-date. Um, here's a couple. Theology in the Raw by Colin Hansen is a good one. Um, this second one looks funny. It's Food Trucks in Babylon. Uh, these are a couple of guys, they're professors at Western Seminary in Portland. So if you want to talk about which way the cultural winds are going, they're right on the tip of the spear of weirdness there in culture. So you kind of hear about some things quickly from them, and I think that's good. Gospel Coalition has several um, great podcasts, you could look to them. And one in particular that I'm seeing regularly is this thing called Good Faith Debates, where they'll take Christians who have differing ideas of something and they'll debate in a collegial manner, which I think is a great example for us. So, so there's a few there. Third thing here, and this one, I just really, really cringe on this, but I still got to say it. Blogs. There are some good blogs out there. There's some really bad blogs out there. Really bad. So, I mean, I kind of think it's like 20 to 1, bad versus good, right? But there are some good ones. And um, here's two that I would recommend to you. One is called First Things. And this actually comes from a Catholic perspective, but great uh, scholarship, particularly on culture. And then uh, another one by Tim Callies is a great blog as well. So those are two that I find valuable. And then lastly, you could study in community. There's a couple community forums. One meets right here in town. It's called Colson Fellows. And four ladies from our church participated in it this year. And it takes you through a series of articles and reading and videos and kind of holds your hand through a cultural assessment for the purpose of helping you engage the lost world, not just putting a bunch of data in your head, but coming out with a plan for gospel engagement. Um, There's another one that's coming out, uh, the Tim Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, and we'll see how this one goes. They stumbled a little bit here on their start, but I'm a big fan of Tim Keller, so um, we'll see about that one. So study, study is one uh, way we do this. Secondly, through observation. In other words, what's going on in the marketplace? What's being sold? What's being advertised? How is it being marketed? What cultural assumptions does it show? We can look just to the Apple product line alone and take some cultural cues. All of their devices begin, of course, with the letter I. If that is not an indictment on the present world, I don't know what is. That is what we are about. We are about the sovereign I, me, everything tailored to me. Or we could also look at, say, some of the signs that we see. Here's one that I know you run into quite a lot. There you go. Uh, I just got back from Boston a few weeks back, or a couple months back, I guess. This is in a lot of front yards in Boston, same in Portland. In this house, we believe black lives matter, women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. Where the church has the Apostles' Creed, this is now the Secular Creed. This is what is believed and championed broadly today. So we can watch for these kinds of signs or slogans that we hear. You do you. Live your best life. Be true to yourself. And we get a sense of of sort of where the culture is at. And then another one I would challenge you on is music. Listen to the music, not just for enjoyment, but critically. What message is it saying? And sometimes I think it's really wonderful as a Christian to listen to secular music, to hear the questions and the longing of the human heart there. Sometimes that's really insightful for us. So we listen with critique, not just to say where they're wrong, but to, to discover what is it they're asking. One of my favorite bands, not a Christian band, is called Blind Pilot. Blind Pilot. And they have this song that's called, I actually can't remember the title of it now. I can't believe we get just one is the line that comes out to me. As they're reflecting on life and thinking about its brevity and the fact that we're finite. And oh my goodness, we only get one of these. And that tells us a little bit about the human longing and the human questioning. Uh, Here's another one by, I don't know, do we have any Avett Brother fans in in the room? Anybody know? got a couple people, a few of you. Yeah, nice. There's about four of us. Um, They have this this one song, I I didn't write the title down, and I forgot it first service. Um, No Hard Feelings. I think that's the title. Yeah? No, you don't know. It goes like this. When my body won't hold me anymore, and it finally lets me free, will I be ready? When my feet won't walk another mile, and my lips give their last kiss goodbye, will my hands be steady? When I lay down my fears, my hopes, and my doubts, the rings on my fingers, and the keys to my house with no hard feelings. When the sun hangs low in the west and the light in my chest won't be kept held at bay any longer. When the jealousy fades away and it's ash and dust for cash and lust. And it's just hallelujah. And love in the thought, love in the words, love in the songs they sing in the church, and no hard feelings. And it goes on to ask, will I be ready? I think that's an incredibly insightful set of lyrics for the question of the human heart, a person who's not a believer going, the end of life is coming, will I be ready for what's next? And, and that, that tells us, that equips us with some of the questions that people are asking so we can address those. The third way I think we, we become attentive to the cultural views around us is just through attentive listening to our friends especially, where we learn to ask good questions and then we learn to listen carefully for understanding. And when I say listen carefully for understanding, there's something I think we need to do in this. And I've had to learn this as sort of a pastoral skill, and that is when you're listening to someone, to suspend rebuttal as long as you can and to give them the floor, keep telling me listen longer listen a little longer hear more and as you do that you're gaining trust in them that you genuinely care and they're giving you lots more information you're learning so that when you do speak with rebuttal it's careful thoughtful precise and incisive listen well so at first when when people hear paul speaking we'll notice that he doesn't get a ton of respect for uh, what he is sharing for the gospel that he's promoting here. Uh, he begins to debate with what we're told are Epicurean and, and Stoic philosophers. I'm not going to go into depth on this, but just give you a, a quick signal on where these guys are coming from. But the Epicureans basically believed chase happiness, get happiness, pursue it. Uh, kind of the Sheryl Crow philosophy, right? If it makes you happy, can't be that bad. So that's kind of their philosophy. And of course, you can imagine how that would lead quickly to hedonism. Um, That's the Epicureans. The Stoics basically thought, well, we want to live according to nature, the natural way of things, priding ourselves on self-sufficiency, independence. They sound like Alaskans, don't they? So what is Paul saying to these two groups as he's debating with them? He's preaching the Christian gospel. The gospel does not change. He's speaking of Jesus and the resurrection. The gospel doesn't change, but is apologetic how he might demonstrate it and show it that may. So again, they kind of react to him at first. He doesn't get a great hearing. And they are defensive, essentially saying, who is this babbler? And that word is really interesting. It doesn't mean like one who just pratters on and on, like, you know, a long-winded Baptist preacher or something like this. But the word babbler here in the Greek actually means scavenger or sort of literally um, bird or seed picker, like a bird. And this was a specifically pejorative term in this location for people who would walk around the Oropagus and listen to the debates and philosophies of those around them and grab up a little bit and kind of cram it together and make their own and then share their own thing. So it was a pejorative way of just talking about sort of the riff-raff in the Oropagus, not the deep thinkers. Uh, And a sort of contemporary reference, it's like someone on Facebook who just shares and likes and, you know, sends everything out, whether they know it to be true or not. So what does Paul do with this uh, criticism that he gets? Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, people of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So, the second thing I see Paul do here that I think is instructive for us is that a thoughtful Christian witness will look for common ground. look for common ground. Paul has done his cultural homework here, right? He understands where people are coming from. He's milled around the marketplace. He's looked at their things. And I think it's really impressive that the Apostle Paul can speak with equal facility to people in so many different spiritual positions. In other words, he can go into the synagogue and speak to someone who is a long-standing Jew who knows the scriptures well, and he can speak with them. Or he can speak to someone in the marketplace, the everyday person on the street. He can address the great thinkers in the community. He can even go sort of to the council or city hall, so to speak. And I want to tell you, that's something that a skill that I hope I would have as a Christian, that as I hold the gospel, that I could hold my own every one of those spheres, which in our day and age, in our particular place, might look like this. I could speak to someone of a different religion and have a sense of it. Uh, I could talk to someone on, on the streets, you know, at the, at the coffee house or the playground or the soccer field. Or I could be up at UAF and listen to a lecture, and, and I could hold my own with the gospel there. Or let's say the, the city council is considering some legislation, and it's concerning to us, that I could go armed with the gospel and speak cogently to it there as well. And notice that Paul, he's not trying to be an irritant. That's not what what he's up to. In fact, when we hear him here, his tone is not sharp or shrill or harsh. Even when he's preaching the gospel, even when he's in debate with those who disagree with him, he presents the gospel winsomely as good news. He shows that the gospel is good news, not just inconvenient truth. It says it explicitly paul was preaching the good news about jesus and the resurrection now i want to show you an example of this Um, this is two weeks in a row i'm going to show you a clip from sam albury Uh, he is a pastor that i respect particularly because as he contends for the truth and confronts the cultural the culture's drift to secularism he does so winsomely And he does so with a tone that believes the gospel and believes that the gospel and all that it teaches is truly good news for people. So this is a clip from about eight or ten years ago where he is speaking to his local synod. The issue of the day was they were considering to hold or to let go of the traditional view of marriage, the synod was. And he came in defense of the traditional view of marriage, even though he himself identifies as one who struggles with same-sex attraction, but does not practice because he lives faithfully to the teaching of Christ. So let me set the stage for you. But hear how he addresses uh, the, the synod here, his tone and his incisive message.
1: Sam Albury, Oxford three. Thank you, Chair. Thank you to, uh, to the bishops for their hard work. I'm sure it was painful for them, but I think you don't become a bishop for an easy life. I am same-sex attracted, and have been my entire life. Uh, By that, I mean that I have sexual, romantic, and deep emotional attractions to people of the same sex. I choose to describe myself this way because sexuality is not a matter of identity for me. And that has become good news. My primary sense of worth and fulfillment as a human being is not contingent on being romantically or sexually fulfilled. And this is liberating. The most fully human and complete person who ever lived was Jesus Christ. He never married. He was never in a romantic relationship and never had sex. If we say these things are intrinsic to human fulfillment, we are calling our savior subhuman. I've met literally hundreds of Christians in my situation I know of thousands more who are same sex attracted and who joyfully affirm the traditional understanding of marriage being between a man and a woman and the only godly context for sex. If you don't hear from more of us, it is because it is very hard to stand up and describe ourselves in in this way. As someone who uses the language of same sex attraction, I have to say that my church has not become a safe place for me. And by church, I don't mean my congregation, I mean this synod. Not because of what the report says, but because of what has happened since. I was bullied at school for being gay. I now feel I'm being bullied at synod for being same-sex attracted and faithful to the teaching of Jesus on marriage. I'm grateful the report reaffirms the traditional doctrine of marriage I'm concerned that we're already preparing to pastorally undermine it. So my question to the bishops is not will you preserve this doctrine, it's do you really believe in it? Is it good news for the world? Many of us have found it to be life-giving, as the message and teaching of Jesus always is. Thank you.
0: I respect him so much for his faithfulness to the teachings of Christ, against the temptations that he feels, his willingness to speak out about it, and the careful and gentle tone in which he does so. I think that is incredibly winsome and effective, and God has used him uh, in in many people's lives. And so I think Sam Albury is an example of the same kind of thing that that Paul does here. He finds this, this point of agreement. He looks for common ground, and finds points of agreement where one can and so his sort of affirmation is i see that you guys are very religious okay we've got some common ground we're we're trying to figure out what is our life in relationship to god that's a common ground thing and he kind of lays that out the second thing that paul does i think is he identifies sort of a common human condition and i think we would be um, well, instructed to, to get good at this as well. And I think the common human condition that he identifies here is what I'll call insecurity when he sees this altar to an unknown God. So the Athenians are basically saying, man, we, we know potentially eternity is at stake, the wrath of a God. We don't want to miss anybody or offend anybody. So, you know, here's kind of the wild card altar, you know, to the unknown God. I don't know. And, I, and Paul seizes upon this, and he kind of addresses this this human condition of uncertainty or insecurity. Um, a couple of years back, my wife was having a conversation with a coworker of hers, and her coworker was dealing with anxiety and was particularly rattled about certain world events and things that were happening uh, in her own personal life and at school and all the rest. And she was just sharing this with Amy, and Amy was listening. And she made this very interesting statement. She says, I just feel so unsettled. How do you deal with all of these things in the world? Or maybe your faith provides you a way of coping with these things. Oh, there's a common human condition right there. This one: How do I cope with the world such as it is? And again, even to use Sam (laughs) Elberry's phrase, the explanatory power of the gospel. And that's something that, that we can show. And so the third point here is just seek bridges wherever possible. Do what we can to sort of close that gap um, as as we move through our gospel conversation. But now we've got to get to the third point here. And this is critical. That a thoughtful Christian witness will be courageous with points of contradiction. And our gospel contradicts many things in the world. And we have to do this courageously. Paul has shown us here. He's done his cultural homework. He's identified some common ground. But now is the moment of truth. Now is the occasion for courageous contradiction. He is not accommodating the gospel to the culture. Paul is in the culture. He's for its good. He's for its flourishing. Therefore, he will share the life-giving message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 24. The God who made uh, made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands He commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead when they heard about the resurrection of the dead some of them sneered but others said we want to hear you again on this subject at that paul left the council some of the people became followers of paul and believed among them were dionysus a member of the Europicus and also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. So again, we see Paul, does, he does not accommodate the gospel to culture, does he? This is a moment of courageous contradiction. Uh, and even while he's doing this contradiction, he's, he's still trying to do it winsomely. Like he even calls out a point of common understanding and common truth where their poets got something right, so to speak. So if all truth is God's truth, when we can kind of seize upon that and show that, yeah, we, as a common human condition, we all feel this or know this, I think that can be helpful in our, in our proclamation. But Paul, basically, because the gap is so big here for a Gentile audience, not the small gap of the Jews, he steps back and he tells the large angle view of the gospel, right? And, and again, this, this view is definitely... Um, He does not shy away from contradiction. There are nine, nine, nine points of contradiction that he brings out in his message here. And I want to list them for you. First of all, that our God is a supreme God. He's not one of many valid options. He's the creator, not one, we're not his maker, it's the other way around. He's not bound to man-made dwellings, but he is transcendent. He is the sovereign Lord of all, not just a local regional deity. He's knowable, in contrast to your fears of some unknown God. He's eminently present in the world, even as some of your own poets have said. He requires repentance of all mankind. He will come back as judge, and he has given evidence of all of these things in the resurrection from the dead. Those are some sharp cutting angles that he puts out there. And I think the sharp edges of the gospel are oftentimes the ones most needed in our particular cultural moment. Soren Kierkegaard once said this Christianity only thrives when it is a sign of contradiction. Only when it is a sign of contradiction. And what, the last thing I want to sort of point out here, too, is the frequency with which Paul points to the resurrection. As his primary apologetic in fact this has been stimulating for me in my study this week I got to thinking I wonder if Paul mentions the resurrection or the cross more that's something I'm gonna chase down on my own personal study but so frequent does he go to the resurrection as the evidence for the gospel Uh, I, I can't think of a time where his message is recorded for us where he doesn't cite the resurrection and maybe that should be a cue to you and me as we share the gospel with people today So to close this out here, we take some cues from the Apostle Paul on our gospel conversations in a culture that has a wider gap now than, say, from the the Jews in the first century. First thing, we mind the gap. We find our points of agreement, we expose the points of disagreement, and we show the explanatory power of the gospel. So we started off with a mad lib. uh, John Chodo's... uh, trip to Colfoot, was it, I think you were headed? We're gonna close um, with a different ad-lib, a true one. You all have been selected by Almighty God in partnership with your Bethel Church family to take the gospel to at least Fairbanks, Alaska, even though they are generally known as the worst-dressed city in America with their Carhartts and Crocs. You are to seek out your neighbors and co-workers, family, and friends. You are to use your feet, your bicycle, your four-wheeler, your sled, your boat, your truck, and your fly rod to get you to the people. This is a lifetime calling. Even though Fairbanks only has Thai restaurants and still no Target or an Olive Garden. God has made the people of Fairbanks, and he has made them for himself. Yet all of Fairbanks has been born into sin. But by his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, has offered salvation to our neighbors and co-workers, family and friends by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are their missionary. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the life-giving message of the gospel. And that it is not a fiction, but a truth validated by the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, may our hearts be affected by the unbelieving world around us. May we be animated to take the gospel to them and skilled as Paul was. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.